I was struck as we sang those lyrics, <clears throat> thinking about our brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping in the Ukraine this morning. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. It's a new level of sobriety to sing words like that when there's shelling going on outside your church, when you're hiding in a basement to worship the Lord. But friends, this is the reality of life and death for all of us, whether we hear the shelling or not. Death is real. It comes to all people. And that reality forces us to think about eternity, to think about truth, to think about where we stand with our Creator. As we come to God's Word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, as we do reflect upon the gospel truths that are true at any time, anywhere, that they are the truths that we hold to, whether we're in a war zone or not. But Father, they are just as urgent. They are just as vital. They're just as necessary for each one of us to understand and to grasp. And I pray that your spirit would please illumine our hearts this morning as we open your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the issues plaguing the American church today is nominal Christianity. By this, I mean those who are Christian in name only. They, in a survey, if asked whether they are a Christian, they would say, yes, I'm a Christian. And yet, when it comes to their lives, they do not actually show an allegiance to Jesus. Of course, the fault of a lot of this is that weak and really unbiblical preaching that seeks to assure people in their, the way they live their lives, even though they may have made some decision long ago. But this results in many people simply being nominal Christians. Oh, sure, they attend church often. You may find them in a small group, but you're more likely to see this person in a large social gathering at the church rather than in a serious study of God's word. They may give to the church financially on occasion. They may be involved and volunteer for this sort of ministry or that. But a nominal Christian would be more identified as affiliated with the church than really a critical member of it. And yet... The nominal Christian, even though he says that he follows Christ, really seeks to serve himself. The nominal Christian is walking in darkness instead of light. The nominal Christian is going to hell instead of heaven. Now, I'm not talking about a weak Christian. I'm not talking about a new believer. I'm talking about what the 17th century Puritan, Matthew Mead, called the almost Christian. The almost Christian. Mead identified 20 ways 
Someone may look like a Christian but not actually be one. He said someone may have much knowledge but not actually be a Christian. He may have great gifts but not actually be a Christian. He may have a high profession or we might call a great testimony but not actually be a Christian. He may do much against sin. He may desire grace in some form. He may tremble at the word. He may delight in the word. He may be a member of the church of Christ. He may even have great hopes of heaven. He may be under great and visible changes in his life. He may be very zealous in the matters of religion. He may even be much in prayer. He may even suffer for Christ. He may even be called of God. He may in some sense have the spirit of God. He may have some kind of faith. He may say that he loves the people of God. He may even go far in obeying the commands of God. He may in some sense be sanctified and he may do all as to these external duties that a true Christian can and yet be no better than an almost Christian. Indeed, there's great danger that people today fall under these same delusions. They trust in some of these things that may look like Christian behavior. In fact, there may be some here today, some listening to me online who fit this very category. There is a danger for those who have attended this church and really any church for many years that they may not actually be a believer. Attendance to church doesn't make one a Christian. And I pray that God uses his word today to cause those who are here who are nominal Christians, who are almost Christians, to wake up and to realize the peril that they are in. And I pray that this text challenges all to look at our lives. And I encourage you to open your copy of God's word to turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Last week we saw that there's no neutrality in the war between Jesus and Satan. The great cosmic spiritual battle that has been going on through all of human history that there's no neutrality. Either you stand with one or you stand with the other. Either you're with Christ or you're against him, as verse 23 says. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Today, we're going to see how Jesus continues to press the people of his day to make a choice. And therefore, he's pressing us today to make a choice as well. To all those who are Christians in name only, Jesus will say that you are not on the path of life. You are on the path to destruction. You are walking in darkness. And so we need to hear this word this morning. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 36. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he, was, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now this passage, I was telling others this week, could be titled The Random Sayings of Jesus. There's just, like, he seems to jump around to all sorts of different things, going from demons to lamps to uh, the men of Nineveh. But what I believe we can see in this text as Jesus confronts his generation is that we can draw from this teaching four conclusions about nominal Christians, four conclusions about those who are on the fence about Jesus, those who might be around Jesus and be fascinated by him, but not actually committed to him. This morning, we're going to see four conclusions from this text. And by doing that, by looking at these conclusions, we'll see why being wholeheartedly dedicated to Christ, truly believing and trusting in him, is vital, urgent, and serious. So the first conclusion I want us to see as we look at this text, is that nominal Christians fail to commit to Christ. Nominal Christians fail to commit to Christ. And we see this in verses 24 through 26. After calling the people to stand with him, in verse 23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. He then introduces a parable describing the worsening effects of failing to trust in him. The parable is admittedly strange to our modern ears. Maybe you've read this in the past ago. I have no idea what's going on there. Uh, but I believe that in this parable about a demon going and leaving and all the rest, there's an important lesson that Jesus wants us to get from it. So let's first examine the details, and then we'll extrapolate the principle for us today. First, the details. Jesus launches right in verse 24 to a scenario where an unclean spirit or demon goes out of a person. This could be an exorcism as he, as he did in a few verses earlier, casting out a demon, verse 14. But it doesn't say that the unclean spirit was cast out. It simply it goes out. So we don't know exactly what caused the demon to leave. The only is the fact that it did leave. It left the individual. When he sees, he then says, this demon, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Apparently the demon is homeless. And he's going around finding a place to, to find home. To find an abode. He goes to the desert a waterless place, an arid place, a desert place. This is commonly understood to be the place of demons. Some biblical texts allude to it. We saw even in Luke chapter 8 that when Jesus, uh, there was a demoniac that Jesus went to go heal and that the demons that were in that man would drive the man into the desert by the demons. 
In one sense, taking their host person into their own domain in a certain sense, away from humanity, out into the region of demons. But after finding no place, Jesus says, this demon says to itself, it has a conversation. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. He goes back to that same person. The house referred here is the person that he exited. He finds the place clean, swept, and put in order. The point is, is that when he returns to the house, returns to the person, he finds that it's improved. But not only improved, but also empty. Improved, but empty. So finding the person clean, but empty, he goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, Jesus says, and they take up residence in this individual. And Jesus' point, he ends with, is clear. The last state of that person is worse than the first. The last state is worse than the first. So, those are the details, but what does this parable, what is this little account about de these demons, how does, what's the principle for us today? Well, here's what I believe Jesus is teaching here. He's saying that those who are morally cleaned up, but not converted, end up in a worse place than when they started. Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus finishes this parable by saying, so also will it be with this evil generation. He tells a story about a demon going, leaving, bringing seven other demons back, and in the last state is worse than the first. And he says, so will it be with this evil generation. In other words, he's saying that there's a correlation between the way that this generation responds to him and the way and, and about the story about demons. I think I understand it this way, that, that Jesus understood that there was, there was a, a reformation, a moral reformation going on in the country. You remember John the Baptist began preaching a, a baptism of repentance and he went out and many people came to him and there was, seemed to be spiritual fervor in a certain sense in the country. But then Jesus came along and they didn't like Jesus. And at this point, they are in full-fledged rejection of him and of his word. And so if they don't accept Jesus, if they don't submit to him as their king, then the last state will be worse than their first. It'll be worse than when before John came. And what we learn from this is that the change, change in moral reformation without conversion is evil and leaves people in a worse state. This... The people this parable speaks to are those who adopt religion but don't commit to Christ. It speaks to those who are intrigued by what Christ offers but have not fully repented and trusted him, in him fully. It speaks to those who, would be, who want to be good people but who never cry out, wash me, Savior, or I die. There's no urgency in their cry to Christ. There's no deep cutting of themselves deep down. There's no conviction. There's no remorse. They simply want to be a better person. You see, this man's condition improved when the demon left him. He tidied up his house. Things were swept and put in order. He stopped some bad habits. He cleaned up his speech. He started doing some religious things like praying, maybe going to church, attending worship. Matthew Mead, that Puritan I opened up with this morning, wrote this. He said, there is a more common work of sanctification which is ineffectual as to the great, two great works of dying to sin and living to God. This kind of sanctification may help to restrain sin, but not to mortify sin. It may lop off the boughs, but it does not lay the axe to the root of the trees. 
It sweeps and garnishes the room with common virtues, but does not adorn it with saving graces, so that a man is but almost a Christian, notwithstanding the sanctification. You see, when this demon returned, he found the house swept and kept in order, put in order, cleaned up in a certain sense. But here's the key. It was empty. It was empty. There was a vacuum. Particularly, they didn't find the Spirit of God. This person, this generation, as Jesus says, has maybe, there was an initial cleaning of house, but they didn't embrace Christ and therefore be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You see, these eight demons could not have returned and taken up residence if the Lord himself was living there. And the same is true today. A person who adopts religiosity and seeks to clean up their life, but who never commits fully to Christ, will find themselves in a worse place than when they started. To adopt Christian lingo, behavior, and habits, but not to repent of one's sins, will ultimately be damning for you. The Apostle Peter was there that day when Jesus spoke these words. They stuck in his mind. And he brought them forward when he wrote his second letter that we have in 2 Peter. He wrote the following about false teachers. He said, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Peter understood that those who rely on moral reform for salvation will not be protected against sin and Satan. The world and its defilements will come knocking at one's door and they will find themselves in a worse state than before. Friends, Christianity is not just the best of all religions. It's not just another path up the mountain. It's, it's the only path to God. It's the only path to everlasting life. It's the only path to escape judgment. It's the only answer to our deepest and greatest needs. It's the only way to be truly transformed and changed. But we must embrace Christ fully. You see, the message of Christianity is not just to be a better person with a little Jesus thrown in. Because you know what that's called? That's called moralism. To simply say that it's the message of Christianity is to be a better person. Dr. Albert Moeller provides a helpful definition of moralism. He says, moralism is the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. He continues, moralism promises the favor of God and the satisfaction of God's righteousness to sinners if they will only behave and commit themselves to moral improvement. We sin against Christ and we misrepresent the gospel when we suggest to sinners that what God demands of them is moral improvement in accordance with the law. Finally, he concludes, moralism produces sinners who are potentially better behaved. The gospel of Christ transforms sinners into the adopted sons and daughters of God. Friends, to simply say that we, the message of Christianity is to be a better person is to undercut everything Jesus came to do. Jesus would not have to come and die and be buried and be raised again if it was simply to change our behavior from the outside. The essence of our message is to repent, to believe in Christ. Repentance means to die to ourselves, to confess our failure to achieve God's standard, that we can't ever measure up to that standard. 
and yet to embrace Christ because he's the only Savior that met that standard for us. The only way that we could be accepted into heaven, the only way that we could answer God, if you were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, is because I embraced your son and I'm clothed in his righteousness. We can't pull out any of our own deeds because they're all filthy rags, friends. We cannot rely upon some sort of moralism or religious reform. We must throw ourselves upon Christ. Nominal Christians are believing the lie of moralism and they're in a spiritually dangerous place. Their hearts are not changed and they're not fully committed to Christ. So that's the first conclusion about nominal Christians. The second that we see, we derive from this text is that nominal Christians miss out on blessing. Nominal Christians miss out on blessing. We can see this in verses 27 through 28. Verses 27 and 28 are unique to Luke. Matthew, Mark, and John do not mention this, this little account of, of a, this woman who speaks up in the midst of Jesus' teaching. But in the midst of all this opposition, midst of all the nation pushing back against Jesus and not submitting to his word and, and challenging him and saying he's, he's, he's doing his stuff in the power of Satan. This woman's had enough. She's going, I can't handle all these people speaking out against Jesus. This man is doing amazing things. And so it says, verse 27, and as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now, admittedly, this kind of statement would be strange in our society if in some sort of public gathering, a woman, someone stood up and shouted this sort of blessing to anyone. But in that time, it was understood to be a compliment to bless the mother, particularly of a famous son. And so by offering a blessing to Mary, this woman was stating that she understood how special Jesus was. In other words, she was saying, because you're so great, your mother must be very blessed. And so that hers was a declaration of faith. But Jesus didn't want people only to be fascinated with him or amazed even as she was. He was calling for even deeper commitment. And so he replied to her, notice verse 28, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now we, this might sound like a hard critique and go, whatever lady, you got this all wrong. It's about those who obey the word of God. But we should rather see this as a a correction to be sure, but a mild correction in the sense that he's saying, you're right, but that's not all. You're right, but that's not all. More than amazement and appreciation, he wants obedience. Interestingly, these two verses is the one positive instruction in the midst of well, all that we're looking at this morning, even in the context of the chapter, of all of this negative. Jesus says here, very clearly that blessing will come to those who hear God's word and those who keep God's word. Where would these people hear God's word? Well, they hear it from the Old Testament to be sure, but at this time, they're hearing it from God's representative, the king who's right in front of them. In him, the kingdom of God had come upon them, as Jesus said in verse 20. Jesus was God's greater prophet, was God's greater king. They should listen to him. The problem is they weren't listening they weren't repenting of their sins. They weren't confessing him as Lord. They were skeptical. They were asking for more signs. They were attributing his works to Satan. And so for the crowd that day and for 
all of us sins. He declared loudly that the path of blessing is found through listening to and obeying God's word. Folks, listen up. Blessing is found in obedience. I want you to say that with me. Blessing is found in obedience. Blessing is found in obedience. Blessing here is speaking of the biblical way to talk about all that God has promised for us in Christ. Some of it we've received now. Some of it awaits our future glory. But God has blessing for all those who trust in his son. And this is needed urgently today because the temptations abound for us to find blessing elsewhere. Do they not? We're tempted to find blessing in sin. To simply follow the lusts of our heart. To do what we want to do, what feels good. That's where the happiness, the joy, the good life is found. We're tempted to believe in our autonomy. That if we can simply control our lives and do what we want to do, then we will find blessing. We will find the good life. We will find what, we, what makes us feel good. We're tempted to believe that blessing is found in wealth and affluence. That simply if we buy more stuff, if we were able to get this or that, make our house look this way or get this sort of car or fill in the blank, blessing would be found. The good life is found in that. We're tempted to find blessing in the approval of other people. If I could simply get praise, be recognized for what I do. Of course, the list can go on. The devil finds all sorts of ways to tempt us to find blessing in other places other than obedience to God's word. This was the original temptation, right? Satan tempted Eve to that she would find blessing in disobeying God rather than in obeying God. It's that simple. But note, it isn't enough to simply hear the Bible or to know what it says. We must obey it. We must keep it. In fact, this word for keep is to guard it. The means that we are seeking to guard the teaching in our own lives so that it doesn't become broken by our disobedience. It's like God's word is fine china that we're carrying around and we care so much for it, we value it, that we don't want it to break on our watch. This obedience can't be partial. It's got to be whole obedience to all of God's commands. The, that Puritan Matthew Mead in another place goes on to warn about this partial obedience. He says this, he says, there is a partial obedience, a piecemeal religion. When a man obeys God in one command and not in another, now this obedience is no obedience. For as he that does not love God above all does not love God at all, so he that does not obey all the commands universally cannot be said to obey any command truly. Friends, we're forced to ask ourselves, how is our obedience? How is not just our hearing of God's word? Are we truly listening? As we read our word, do we, do we come to hear the word of God as we read it each day? Do we come to hear the word of God as we come to sit among God's people and hear it preached each week? Do we truly long to hear God's word because blessing is found in hearing it, but not only hearing, right? It's also found in doing, in keeping, in guarding. How is the obedience in your life? Do you treasure God's word so much that you don't want it to break in your life? You don't want the teaching to be shattered by your disobedience. You see, the nominal Christian loses out on blessing because they fail to hear and obey God's word as this generation did. 
Friends, don't let this be you. Don't miss out on the blessing God has in store and put before you today. Listen to Christ. Hear his word and keep it. Hold on to it. As a drowning person holds on to that life ring, you must hold on to Christ. And you'll find true blessing both now and forevermore. The third conclusion we can draw about nominal Christians from this text is that they will be condemned. Nominal Christians will be condemned. These are hard words, friends, but these are the hard words of our loving Savior who seeks to provide a warning before it's too late. Verse 28, he's just talked about that what he requires of his generation of all people since is hearing the word of God and obeying it. And now he's going to provide a critique to that generation that they neither heard the word, desired to hear the word, and they didn't obey it and respond to it. And he does this by comparing their recalcitrant hearts with some Old Testament figures. It says, verse 29, the crowds were increasing. He began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Notice that he calls this generation an evil generation, verse 29. This is a full-scale condemnation of this generation before him. They have failed to accept Jesus, and therefore it is evil. Take note of that, friends. To be on the fence about Jesus, but not actually fully commit to him and embrace him and believe in him is evil. It's evil because it continues to ride the fence about Christ. These people did not believe the signs Jesus performed in their midst. Instead, they demanded more signs. And this showed their unbelief. This showed that even though they said they're asking for more signs, they didn't truly believe in Christ, and therefore they're an evil generation. To be non-committal about Christ is evil. Even though Jesus is not walking in our midst today as he was with these people, he is present with us through his word. And his word is very clear. We must all equally bow the knee to him. Now Jesus says, even though they're asked for a sign, they seek for a sign, what sign is he going to give them? He says, it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. In Matthew's gospel, it seems like this sign of Jonah is a, is a reference to the resurrection, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so Jesus will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights, and therefore the greatest sign is the resurrection. And that could be alluded to here, but they're, they're, it may be in the background because Luke doesn't highlight that at all. He doesn't mention the resurrection. He just mentions Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then he goes on later in verse 32 to mention the preaching that Jonah did to this generation. And so I believe what Luke is doing is saying, listen, just as Jonah preached to the Ninevites, so Jesus is now preaching here before you. It's his preaching and ministry and the miracles that he does in the context of that ministry that is the sign that you should see. Just as Jonah was God's representative then, so now Jesus is God's representative and his preaching and message is a sign to this generation. 
Now, obviously, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the cross and the resurrection is going to be the ultimate sign of Jesus' ministry, of who he is. But even his preaching ministry here before the cross was a sign. It was enough of a sign. They didn't need anything else. But this generation refused to repent. They refused to listen to the divinely sent Messiah. And therefore, Jesus says, judgment is coming. Now, verses 32, 31 and 32, Jesus compares the Israelites to some Old Testament characters. He compares his current generation of Israelites with two historical Gentile characters. And that's important to note. He mentions the Queen of the South, otherwise known as Queen of Sheba, and he mentions the Ninevites. Both are Gentiles. And yet, Jesus commends them and says that they are acting more righteously than the Israelites of his day. These Gentiles exhibited more righteousness than those who claimed to be God's people by birth. And I believe, again, in reference to verse 28, where he says that they need to be hearing God's word and keeping it, so he gives two examples of those two activities. First, the queen of Sheba, who hears God's word, and secondly, the Ninevites, who keep God's word, or who responded appropriately, acted upon the word. First was the queen of the south, it says, verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at this at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The emphasis here is that she traveled a long distance to hear the word of God. She traveled a long distance to hear God's representative, who was Solomon, who had God's wisdom. She valued what he had to say. It was valuable enough to her to warrant an expensive trip to hear God's wisdom. And what is this generation doing? Are they tra- do they have to travel anywhere to hear God's word? No. Jesus is right there in their midst, and they're plugging their ears. They're refusing to listen. They are rejecting the very sign that is in their midst. And so it says that she will rise up in the judgment and condemn this generation because they should have recognized that someone greater than Solomon If someone traveled that far to hear Solomon, you should have valued my word so much greater. And they didn't. But secondly, Jesus draws attention to the Ninevites, those people of Nineveh that that Jonah preached to. They too will rise up and condemn condemn this generation. Why? Because they actually repented at the preaching of Jonah. They heard the word and they did something. They acted upon it. They realized they needed to change. But this generation just lets it roll off their back. Doesn't let it affect them at all. They don't respond and keep the word. They should have repented in sackcloth and ashes before Jesus upon hearing his rebuke, but they didn't. And so they, because they have not done this, they will be condemned. Judgment will fall upon them for their unbelief and their rejection in Christ. It's an interesting thing then to think about what will the Queen of the South and what will the men of Nineveh say about you on the judgment day? Do they have any moral standing over you to speak? Are their actions and their lives more righteous than your own? What have you done with the truth that you've been given? Friends, you have God's full revelation in God's word. God is not missing, you're not missing anything of his truth that he wants you to have. 
You have access to biblical preaching, numerous resources, you've heard the truth, and yet what have you done with that truth? Do you put your fingers in your ears and refuse to listen? Do you allow it to go one ear and out the other so that you walk out into your week and fail to keep it or have any desire to obey it whatsoever? Friends, those who fail to take Christ seriously will one day face the wrath of God. Being around church and Christians does not suffice to save us from the wrath to come because Jesus wants your full allegiance. Being acquainted with the Bible is not enough. Jesus demands your all. Being a moral person doesn't mitigate God's wrath for our righteousness is as filthy rags. Having even a, a spiritual or emotional experience in our past is not sufficient. Jesus demands that we are brought to our knees before his holiness, his truth, and his righteousness. And so, friends, I ask you, have you trusted in Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus today, right now? If you were to die right now, it doesn't matter necessarily what you did in the past as much as it is, are you trusting in Christ today? Do you believe in him now? Are you living for him now? Are you hearing his word now? Don't trust in some sort of past event or, or some sort of profession you made long ago. Your valuation we've made today. Make no mistake, friends, judgment is coming upon this world from God. He will execute his wrath upon sinful humanity much like he did in the days of Noah when he flooded the whole earth. And the only place, the only place for refuge and safety is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very God who is sending this wrath sent a rescuer ahead of time so that all who would place their faith and hope in him could find safety and refuge. Jesus says that on that day there will be people who think Jesus is their Savior from judgment. They'll come to him and say, Lord, Lord, you're my Savior, right? I did all these things for you. I was around your church and I, I did ministry for you. As we read in Matthew 7, but the most, some of the most terrifying words ever is that Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. This reminds us the temptation to nominal Christianity is ever close at hand. That we would simply attach the name of Jesus to our lives. That we'd be around doing Christian things to the world we'd look like an evangelical Christian believer and yet we haven't truly committed to Christ. But friends, know that all those in that category will one day face condemnation. The final conclusion that we can draw from this text about nominal Christianity. Nominal Christians must examine themselves. Verses 33 through 36. Nominal Christians must examine themselves. The final paragraph in our text this morning has an interplay between external light and the eye which receives light and the inside of a person. So you can picture a lamp that's on a, on a, on a table and you picture a person standing there and the eye that receives that light and then you think of the body or the inside of a person, the soul of a person. These three dynamics Jesus is mentioning. Verse, he, verse 33, he notes a truism, a principle, right? 
No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, in Matthew 5, this is used to say that Christians are to shine their light to the world. They're to be a city on a hill and showing their good works to all. That's not how Jesus uses this principle here, though. The truism here is that Christ is this lamp. Christ has been set upon a table. He is shining brightly for all to see, particularly in this day. He is set up there so that all around can see Jesus, can see his works, can hear his teaching. He is not hidden. The question is, will these people receive the light? Do they have the right spiritual equipment to be able to receive that light? And so Jesus, in verses 34 through 36, emphasizes the necessity of our receiving of the light. The light does not come into us automatically. It must be received. The eye, as we know, is the part of the body that receives light. So it's natural that Jesus would mention our eyes, right? This is where light comes into our bodies. And the way he uses it here, you could think of it like a window. A window that allows light to come in and allows you to see what's inside. A window, right, allows the daylight to come into a house and also enables you, if you walk up to a house, into a window to see what's inside the house. So, too, our eyes, in a sense, are this window into our lives, into our souls. Eye representing not just our physical eye, but how we receive the truth of God. And the point that Jesus makes here is that if our window is cloudy and dirty, then the light's not getting in. And instead, there's going to be darkness inside. But if the, light, if, if the light does get through, if the window is clear, then the light comes in and our whole body is full of light, that there's a dominance of the light within a person. And so he describes two kinds of eyes in verse 34. Look at it with me. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Two kinds of eyes. The word healthy here means single, singular. It's referring to a singular allegiance to Jesus. When your eye is singular, when it's devoted in full integrity to God alone, not divided, not split, not waffling between the world and and God, but singularly devoted to Christ, then your eye is healthy. And your whole body's full of light. The light comes in and it takes over your being. The word for bad here, when your eye is bad, is the same word translated as evil up in verse 29, where he says, this is an evil generation. This, when your eye is bad or when your eye is evil, your body is full of darkness. Jesus is saying that when people do not have the light of Christ within them, they're not just mistaken or confused. They are evil. In other words, there's a huge difference between these two kinds of eyes. The difference between life and death, between light and darkness. And Jesus applies his teaching then in verse 35. Look at verse 35. It says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. That was special effects. No, I'm kidding. He says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Each person must examine himself to see where he stands. You've got to be careful that the light that you think you have is not actually darkness. 
Jesus, this warning here, friends, is particularly sobering because it tells us that there are those who think that they have the light. They think that internally they have the true light that guides them, and yet actually, Jesus says, if you look there, it's actually darkness. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This is the delusion of mankind is that they believe they have the light. They believe they've been enlightened, that they have the truth on which to live. And yet, they're, when they're guided by their own inner light, they're actually following the darkness that is their sin. Most people actually have darkness in their soul. This was true of the fellow Jews that Jesus was speaking to, and it's true of most people today. But this warning, I believe, is a particular application who those who sit in the pew week after week and yet are not truly Christ's. Nominal Christians need to be careful lest the light in them be darkness. You think that you're around these things and think that because you're familiar with them that you have light. But Jesus says you've got to do a more penetrating analysis than just look about how you fill your activities or the things you are acquainted with or the things you hang around. Is there true light within you? Is it the light of Christ? Do you listen to his word? Do you want to know him? Do you want to obey him? Do you recognize that if it is not for Christ that you are lost forever to his wrath? You see, when you know Christ, you're totally transformed and your body is filled with light and your, and your life is filled with the light of Jesus. That's what Jesus says in verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. When Christ dominates a person, it totally transforms so that light shines from the inside out. Friends, this passage at first glance might seem like a collection of random sayings of Jesus, but it actually drives home the point that allegiance to Jesus is refreshingly simple and yet rejecting Jesus is profoundly wicked. It comes down to this, friends. What do you do about Jesus? It's not about all of this religious stuff. It's about what do you do with Christ? You're one day gonna have to face him and either he's gonna be your judge or he's your savior that you've clung to that you've submitted your life to. What do you do with Jesus today? Don't go half-hearted. Blessing is found in full obedience. Jesus offers himself, avails himself to all sinners everywhere. No matter your past, no matter your history, Jesus offers life to you today if you would but repent and believe in him today. That is the boundless grace of God for you. Don't plug your ears. Don't turn away. Know today that you're one of his and that his light is truly shining in you. And you'll find blessing now and forevermore. May the Holy Spirit enable each of us to correctly assess ourselves this morning. Let me just say that if you need to talk to someone about the state of your soul, about where you stand with Christ. I'd be happy to speak with you down front after the service as everyone's leaving. Feel free to come down and talk with me or talk to someone next to you. We want to help you to know 
how you can know Christ today. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word, but it's a sobering word. And we ask that you would please teach these truths to our hearts. Cause us to be humbled before you. And I pray, O oh God, for those who are on the fence about you, who maybe are trusting in something that is not Christ. Would you at least plant the seed in them today? Put that pebble in their shoe that they can't ignore. They might begin to think and to question and ask themselves the hard questions that they might turn to Christ in full repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.